care for all Your bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The Leftist Comedy Podcast for everyone I am Kate Willett And I am Mohammed El Sheikhi and someone testified before Congress today, uh, just a few minutes ago, that there's uh, aliens. So I think our attitude on that is, wow, we really gotta, really gotta wait and see with this one. I think. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why they necessarily want to come here. Um, so, exactly. What what is the appeal? Like, what what are you seeing here that you don't have? Like, yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Don't come here. It's it's a waste of time. Yeah. Take us with you. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying. So, uh, well, yes, speaking of aliens, uh, Elon Musk has changed the name of Twitter to X now. Yeah. So, is... obviously, that's everyone that, um, obviously, that's, you know, everyone who listens to the show probably knows that. But um, it's just, uh, I, you know, he has this plan to build a super app so that we can all do our banking and rideshare and gaming requests, not gaming requests, rideshare requests, gaming, you know, all kinds of things through Twitter and these like super app. Well, it's not called Twitter anymore. It's called X, which I refuse to call it. But, you know, like the idea that people would be using Twitter X as their financial institution. Like I wouldn't even give that guy $8. Um, Apparently they lost like, billions of dollars in brand value or whatever that means <laughs> as soon as he changed the name i don't know what do you think is going on here i mean first of all can you imagine putting your credit card information into that website or your or, or your bank account information and expecting something good to happen like DMs are being leaked. Sometimes they change the settings that you only get like message requests from verified people and they don't tell you that. The website keeps crashing. You can't tweet uh, above a certain amount of like tweets if you're not verified. All of that shit that just keeps happening. And this man expects us to trust him more and then change it to X. What the fuck is X? It's Twitter. That's that's the that's the brand. You can just take it away. Yeah, and it's and still yeah. Calls- it's like it still says like tweet. It still says like twitter.com. Apparently, they there was a guy who had his handle was just at X and they just took the handle from him and then they offered him the opportunity to quote meet management. So yeah. Meet management. Pretty, like yeah. buy it from me for like a million dollar or more. I don't want to meet management. I just want to see a check. Yeah, yeah, they didn't obviously offer him any money, but you know, um, I, I mean, to me, this is just like I, I'm not sure what it will take to like fully kill this website, but it seems like more and more people just keep leaving, um, and it's just really stupid. You know, I mean, it's like I'm sure that Elon Musk thinks somewhere inside of his head that he could, you know, that he just doesn't need the customers he's losing, and that it's it's just all. You know, he's going to be able to do everything with his like super, you know, loyal customer base of like right wing freaks who bought the blue yeah. or whatever. But also, they didn't they add like a way to monetize from your tweets now? 
yeah. depending on like the engagement. So all of these alt-right freaks now are tweeting the worst shit ever just so they can get more and more engagement. And and people like are responding to them because they don't understand this is just a ploy to make money. Yeah. Yeah, it's all really stupid and dumb. Um, I feel yeah. I don't know. It's it's pretty stupid. It's all really dumb. I, you yeah, know. and and apparently, like uh, while they were changing uh, the name from Twitter to X, like the like on the street, they did not have all of the paperwork. So the cops came and stopped the name change. So now instead of having X, it just says ER. Like that, those are the those are like the letters left from Twitter, and that's just the name of the company, which honestly makes so much sense. Are you like, have you did you see uh, Barbie or Oppenheimer? Did you? Did you I'm know? I'm watching Barbie tomorrow. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I mean, it's like not. Uh, <laughs> people are talking about the politics of the Barbie movie, and it's like. Honestly, like, what did you expect the politics of an advertisement was going to be? <laughs> it's a total yeah. advertisement. <laughs> but it, yeah, ben, yeah, ben, literally, like, I, I, Ben Shapiro, like, has made more videos. The, the runtime of his videos now is now longer than the Barbie movie. Just talking about it. Like, how it's anti-man. And, like, I'm like, bro, why are you there? Like, I get it. Like, you're... Why did you go? What did you expect? I like how he's like, yeah, this is not, you know, traditional values or whatever. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's super traditional for a middle-aged father to cry about Barbie. That's so butch. <laughs> so masculine. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, what are you doing? It's yeah. so embarrassing. It's so fucked up. And I'm just like, I'm just like, your kids are supposed to see this maybe, Ben, uh, not you, but whatever. Um, I have not watched Oppenheimer yet. Have you seen it? I saw Oppenheimer. It's three hours long, and it's a long three hours. Like wow. it's mostly guys talking to other guys, and I see no reason could have about blowing stuff up. Yeah, I like they should have just edited it a little bit. It was a good movie. I mean, like you know, I definitely think that it was. You know, a lot of the criticisms that people have of it are are valid or something. Like the the female characters in it are definitely like, hey man, like have you ever met a woman in real life? Like there's <laughs> two main women, and one shows up to take off her clothes a couple times, and then the other one shows up just to start crying a few times, and it's like oh, okay. you're adaptive. But you Amazing know, I mean, stuff. It's like, I almost, I know I would get crap for saying this. I'm not going to say it on the internet, but I almost think it would be a more interesting choice if you just had no women in the movie, like no main female yeah. characters and just like made it yeah. really about the maleness of that word, world. I mean, yeah. you know, but anyway, I think it's like, it's kind of ridiculous to expect uh, like good politics from, you know, either of these movies or whatever. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, like that. Like, I feel like I want to watch these two movies now. I'm not expecting anything great politics. I'm just like, I just want to watch them for the hype. Just to say, I, I watched them. Like, but I'm everyone on Twitter to be was like litigating uh, World War II. And it's crazy because, like, so you were you you were not a child in the United States, correct? Because I'm talking about elementary no, school. I was not, no. Okay. So basically, like, elementary school, junior high, high school here, we learned, we learned so much about world war ii like yeah 
you know, rightfully so, right? But like the way that we learn about it is just so incredibly nationalistic. Like, yeah, like America just came in and won the war. And I was like an adult before I learned that like the Soviets were definitely way more influential in defeating the Nazis. They lost mm. like a quarter of their population. Um, they wow. really, yeah. like, I mean, they were just, like, you know, the Americans definitely had a, a part, you know, through the Lend-Lease policy and... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the Soviets basically are... I think that the, the historical debate is, like, between, you know, were the Soviets mostly responsible for defeating the Nazis or were they exclusively responsible for defeating the Nazis? Like, it's, it's a story in which it's like, oh, yeah, like, the Americans won this you know um so yeah i yeah it's just you know i think that um the history you know obviously this is not a new point but history can be you know very much just like the function it serves in our education system is is literally just like a type of ideological propaganda um and yeah yeah i mean I mean, it's it's funny because like it's not just history. It's literally like we see stuff that has happened maybe like four years ago or so is being changed right in front of us right now. Uh, like uh, especially like let's say with like the Biden administration, like all of the stuff that they promised to do or like say or whatnot, and they're like doing the exact opposite. And literally, we have video evidence, and we have seen them talk about like the border and like what they want to do and all of that stuff. And now they're like, "We've never. What are you talking about? We've never said that. This is not what happened." I'm like, "This is something that we were alive for." So I can imagine stuff that we weren't even around to see, and how that is just being misrepresented now. Yeah, it's. I think that like a, a bad part of like knowing history is if you talk about like things that actually happened, sometimes you sound like a conspiracy theorist. Like one thing that really happened mm -hmm. is that the U.S. ran a vaccination campaign in Pakistan and it was mm -hmm. like it was real vaccinations, but it mm -hmm. was to collect people's DNA um, yeah. to try to find Osama bin Laden. And now there's like way wow. more global distrust in vaccinations as a result of the fact that we did <laughs> wow. that. Wow. Um, and that I, is fucking insane. Yeah, no, it just it's completely insane, and it, it <laughs> up, but it's real. <laughs> I'll link an article about it in the show notes this week. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Imagine like a whole campaign to find one guy this is like if we just look if we just learned right now that this whole vaccine like the whole covid pandemic and all of these people that have died was just to find where uh snowden was yeah so this was um this is 12 years ago the cia uh organized a fake vaccination campaign to get osama bin laden's family's uh dna and yeah, it was, uh, you know, I mean, there's just like so much stuff in, in U.S. history that, you know, especially yeah. like, especially our, our adventures abroad, you know, like it just, it sounds not real. <laughs> no, I, I think, it, I think it's just, I think the, the, the issue is always that there is no room for like nuance at all. Like, like 
like something like you said now, yeah, obviously, like you should not trust the government because they pull something as insane as this. But there are two, I feel like there are two groups of people, especially with like the vaccines now and like the, the pandemic and all of that. People who are just like, will not take it because they think it's some government conspiracy to just like turn us into just whatever. And then the other side, we're just like, no, we're supposed to 100% blindly trust the government. This is good. And I'm yeah, like, no, maybe there's, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, no, I mean, like, a, I, I wish that as a country we were capable of a sober intellectual analysis, but um, unfortunately we are not, you know, it could be both true that the, the CIA organized this vaccination campaign and also, like, of course, you should take the COVID vaccine, which is where I stand on it. Hopefully listeners know that, but yeah, yeah, yeah for you, like, I mean, like, what in the sort of, like, telling about, you know, like, when you hear, like, the U.S. media's recounting of, like, you know, U.S. intervention in Libya and what that was like, I mean, like, you were there, like, how does that, how does the narrative strike you? It's, no, it's, it's, it's insane, because, like, it's not even, like, now, it's even, like, when things were happening, you know, like, obviously, things were in Libya were bad, and Gaddafi did a lot of terrible things. But when you watch the news, it, some of it was like a lot of like exaggeration happening. Like, for example, like you see something on CNN or whatever, and they're like, they're bombing this place, and they're like, so many people are dying right now at this moment. And I'm like, that place is like two blocks away from where I am. I think I would have noticed. Yeah. If it was being bombed right at this moment and people are dying. Like, yeah. But, but obviously, all of it was kind of like to build up to like an intervention. Yes. Uh, and taking control over like the uh, oil fields and stuff like that. So, but at the same time, it wasn't the other extreme way where it was like, oh, Gaddafi was good and this was all like part of a plan. I'm just like, no, it's somewhere in between again. Like, uh, but yeah, it's it's I don't know. It's always like, like I I I don't think people understand how powerful U.S. media is, not just in the U.S. but like all around. Yeah, yeah. It's I've been looking at San Francisco, like media out of San Francisco recently, and it's there's been this pattern of like what happens is like a tourist will go to San Francisco and then they'll tweet, you know what, actually, this is a pretty nice place. It's a beautiful city <laughs> because there's just all this like, right. there's all this narrative, like San Francisco's a hell hole. It's, you know, so violent and it's covered in open air, open air drug markets is the phrase that they like to use. And like, someone will just go there and be like, I, I actually really enjoyed myself. There's a lot of hills and you can see the ocean. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Literally. It's so insane to me. Cause I'm just like, San Francisco is so beautiful and so much fun to be there. And it's like how it was when uh, all of these protests were happening in Portland. Yeah. And they're like, the city is literally on fire. And I'm like, you keep showing two blocks in downtown Portland. Yeah. Also, down, no one lives in downtown Portland. It's literally just stores. And yeah. who who gives a fuck? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's such a... It's Yeah. It's crazy to me. So this week, we are going to continue to talk about... Um, 
hot labor summer and the ongoing WGA strike. And we're very lucky this week to be joined by a friend of the show and reporter for The Intercept, uh, Ken Klippenstein. And he's going to come on and talk to us about a piece that he had recently about the money that Netflix is spending on AI while, you know, refusing to negotiate to pay writers fairly. Um, You know, this strike is really dragging on. Um, Like, obviously, solidarity. I feel, you know, just so terrible that the studios are not negotiating. Um, I'm not a WGA member, but am also striking in solidarity from, you know, writing work, of course. Um, I saw that uh, General Hospital is going to be hiring scabs, and I think... um, Jeopardy is going to be hiring scabs, and like we knew this, we knew that the scab attempt would come, but uh, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure like how pervasive this will become. I think for some of these things, um, that my guess is that they're going to hire people who like do like marketing, advertising kind of writing, like um, branded content type people. My guess is like people who don't have yeah. situations in particular of working in Hollywood, because if you scab. Like you can't work on a WGA project ever again. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm. I'm. I'm definitely really worried about it. Um. But it, we will see as it continues to unfold. And I'm definitely looking forward to talking to talking to Ken. He's always so amazing. Wait. You got anything coming up? Uh. Yeah. I. I I'm I have shows coming up in Chicago and at Zany's on on August sixteenth and then Portland September twenty third at the Clinton Street Theater. If people want to come and uh, you know see my hour. Awesome! I'm gonna be um in Asheville August fourth and I'm gonna be in Charleston South Carolina August fifth and I will be at the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival in Upstate New York on August third. Um. Schenectady, New York, on August twelfth. So you know, I'll I'll be around, but that's what's going on with me for the next couple of weeks. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening to the show and um, being patient with us during our summer touring slash <laughs> slash we we need to do stuff break. Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> stick around for, for my interview with Ken. Thank you so much. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Um, it's Kate here with one of our favorite guests of all time. Uh, welcome back to the show, uh, the FOIA King, journalist with The Intercept, Ken Klippenstein. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Good to be back. Um, so you've been doing some great coverage of labor this summer and everything that's been happening with the strikes. And before we jump into this article that I really love that you wrote uh, earlier this week, I was wondering if you could just give us like a quick overview of what's happening in labor right now. Yeah, so I think the macroeconomic conditions are very favorable to workers right now. If you look at the unemployment um rate that's the lowest that it's been in many years uh, but it's even more complicated than that so um after the pandemic obviously a lot of people uh passed away uh people's relation to work change and that's been borne out by uh polling people's attitudes on on work have become more 
um, you know, critical, they expect more. It's kind of like, well, you know, I, I, I worked through this horrible pandemic. Uh, not only are there fewer workers for them to be able to place, but the workers that are still around have a better bargaining position and can ask for more things. And uh, one of the consequences of that um, is that they can, you know, unionize and, you know, in the event that since the U.S. is um, kind of off the spectrum in terms of how lawless its business class is, um, uh, just to cite one example of several, uh, Starbucks's, uh, you know, slash and burn campaign to just uh, repeatedly violate federal labor law in order to uh, crush these unionization attempts. Uh, it turns out because of those macroeconomic conditions I was uh, talking about before, people are more willing to take those chances because they think, well, if I get fired, I can go find another job. Um, and it's sort of interesting to see the Federal Reserve's um, uh, internal discussion about these things. Uh, they release these uh, things like once every month, kind of saying what they think of the state of the environment and, and also looking at um, business reports. Uh, so they have to do quarterly earnings uh, calls that are public where they talk with investors and they're really unhappy and worried about um, this this labor envi environment that I've been describing because workers can push for things and ask for things. They really don't like that. It's unclear how long this is going to last for, but for the time being, that has led to really unprecedented labor ferment. Um, of the sort that, you know, I mentioned um, Starbucks a moment ago, all these unionization efforts at the different facilities, but even the first um, Amazon uh, warehouse unionizing um, in the United States. So there's all kinds of, uh, frankly, exciting and and, and uh, novel things happening right now uh, with regard to the labor movement. And that was sort of my motive in in in, in covering the the actors and writers strike that's taking place right now. The first, the first joint actors and writers strike to have happened since 1960. So it's really hard to overstate how historic all of this stuff is. I have seen you talk on Twitter um, about like a, a slightly more favorable to labor NLRB being, um, you know, part of why some of this is happening right now. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Oh, totally. Um, for, you know, whatever reason, Biden picked an unusually um, effective uh Labor Council and and Labor Chief, and um, you know this is all relative to <laughs> the U.S. context, which you know is is has never been a, a I mean at least in our lifetime it's not a hotbed of 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 labor ferment, but within but you know for the United States they're unusually aggressive, and and you know to see these cases where where they are actually taking a task, um, Starbucks and uh, Amazon in 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 their conduct again <laughs> it is a bare minimum, but it's also not something that you could have counted on. Um, prior to the Biden administration. And, you know, in my reporting, I've been plenty critical of this administration, but specifically with regard to labor, for whatever reason, maybe his own personal background, maybe just the historical moment, he sees that that's where power is. Um, he has been a little bit more sympathetic to it than certainly than the Obama administration, but also than uh, any other Democrat in my lifetime. And what have they been doing? Like, I think I I saw that Starbucks was that they sued Starbucks basically for their violations um, of the labor laws or like what kinds of actions are they taking to try to get these companies in check? Well, they're just nakedly ignoring federal labor law, which is already pretty weak. And even the small, you know, statutes that we have on the books to protect organized labor, they're not respecting uh, doing things like... Uh, impeding um, unionization efforts, trying to interfere with efforts to organize, firing people that that are that are organizing, 
Um, and it just, you know, on a repeated basis. And so I think this is really an interesting clash. I think it's, uh, if you look at the way in which the business class discusses these things, the way that the CEO of Starbucks, it's clear they've never had anyone stand up to them like this before. And again, I don't want to overstate what the administration is doing because it's, you know, hardly sunshine and rainbows, but it's like even just the tiny bit of accountability that's taking place, you know, these, these, you know, uh, 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 modest fines that they're being slapped with and things like that. That's something that's unprecedented. I think it's very hard for management to come to grips with. I had a story a couple months ago based on an earnings call where they were talking about how they need to, they want to put um, management back in quote, the driver's seat. It was some finance company bemoaning the state of labor where they're no longer just complete in, they no longer have total control. Workers can choose to stay at home and it's difficult for them to coerce workers to come back into the workplace. So the entire environment is just like completely, it's it's very interesting. You're actually seeing a bit of a conflict now, and you know I'm, I wouldn't come to the point where I'm saying labor's winning, but there is at least a fight where there wasn't one before. So this article that you wrote, I mean, this was a, a jaw dropper, and you know I've been thinking a lot about you know the strike because like this is my industry. I'm not a WGA member, but like you can't you can, can't work as a writer at all right now without being a scab. So I'm not going to. And, um, you know, I just, I, I really hope that these studios come to the table with something much better soon, because a lot of people that I know are really, really suffering or have had to take jobs in other industries. And basically this article, um, Actors are striking for protections and writers and Netflix listed a $900,000 AI job. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the context of the um, writers and actors strike, just to give people some um, just hard data off the bat, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what actors are like. Everybody thinks of George Clooney and the millions and millions he makes going on movies, but that's an extraordinarily small percentage of actors. And that's not even to say that it's like only the successful ones make all that money. There are lots of character actors that you'll see um, on shows, the kind of uh, actor you'll say, oh, I like that guy. You don't necessarily remember what the person's name is, but you'll recognize them from various shows. It's those actors too. They don't make all that much money. In fact, um, the, uh, the, the actors, uh, Union put out statistics saying that, um, looking at my notes here, 87% of um, actors that are part of the union make less than $26,000. So this is an overwhelmingly, uh, you know, very meagerly paid profession. And again, that's not just people that are like out of work or whatever. This includes all kinds of people that are finding um, work continuously. They just don't happen to be at the top of the um, income distribution, just like everything else in the country. The 0.1% is making extraordinary amounts of money, but for ordinary people to look at that and say, oh, all actors are living these lavish life, uh, uh, you know, livelihoods. Why do I care about them? It's just it belies a lack of understanding of of how the field works. And 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 how, so that was kind of my motive for looking at it was just horror at how bad, I mean, I know actors and that's how I, why I had a sense of, um, you know, how, how badly they're paid. And I'm a journalist. So for that to yeah. stand out to me, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, journalists are not very well paid either, but it sounds like actors have it even worse. And so um, what I did was I tried to approach this, uh, you know, as scientifically as I could to just say, okay, well, let's actually see what the job postings say about um, where these companies are spending their money. Because um, Bob Iger, uh, CEO of Disney kind of stepped in it when he went on, I can't remember what cable outlet it was, but he said that the um, actors union is not being quote, realistic 
with their demands. And you read about the demands, they sound pretty modest. And so I was kind of curious. It's like, okay, so what's an evidence-based way that we can come to this and see, okay, what can they actually afford? What I found was astonishing. They're th- they're making it rain with, with regard to AI jobs. I mean, I couldn't find a single AI job that didn't pay in the six-figure range at the very least. And the 900,000 was kind of the most shocking uh, example that I could find of, but all of them were in like at least 150,000, many 200, 300, 400. And this was at virtually every company. And these are not just the kind of AI that you use to um, you know, algorithmically recommend you things. This is what's called generative AI. So they are investing very heavily in the kinds of AI like chat GPT and like the kind of AI that you use to create um, what's called deep fakes that were uh, satirized in a um, Netflix or uh, uh, Black Mirror episode that people might've seen. Um, and that's pretty much exactly what they're doing. It turns out that that Black Mirror episode, I think it was called Joan is Awful, um, that wasn't even really satire. It's pretty much what they're trying to do. You know, like they're trying to scan actors' likeness. I found one job posting where they offered people, I think it was $400 to scan their likeness. And what was interesting, I talked to a computer science professor to get some context on this because I don't understand the technology behind it. And so the posting described was described as being, oh, we're just collecting this for academic research. You know, this is for research purposes. You don't have to worry about it being used commercially. But what this computer scientist said is that that distinction is pretty much meaningless because um, all, many of these big corporations, they have a quote unquote research wing that they take the this stuff and then they hand it to the commercial wing. So there's no real distinction between them. And they're already actively collecting all these things to try to, to try to, um, use the actor's likeness to create AI entertainment for which um, it's unclear if they'll be remunerated. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is just like such a fundamental misunderstanding of what people like about art. You know, like, I don't think that, I mean, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I don't think that people want to watch an AI movie where everybody is just like some scanned, you know, where everyone's a robot or whatever. I don't know the technical terms, but like, I think that people like the humanity of writers and actors and want to watch things that they, you know, can connect to on a human level. And I I don't think that this plan is going to work. I think that they'll like try making some AI shows and they won't be popular, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously- I agree with you. I think, you know, when I started talking to people on the investor finance side, I started to get a much more cynical, I think, realistic picture of what's going on here. They were saying, so in the context of the Federal Reserve rate hikes, uh, recall the Federal Reserve um, uh, interest rate was close to zero for a very long time, which basically means free money for these corporations to invest in. And so as they hiked those numbers, they didn't have access to what's called cheap money as easily anymore. So now they have to be able to go to the investors and, and and you know you have this general downturn in the stock market, so they have to come up with something to say, tell the investors, "Hey, look at this great stuff we're doing that's going to yield all these returns. Invest in us." And uh, what some of the finance people started telling me is they just thought this was kind of a grift to to be able to say, "Hey, look at this huge breakthrough. Who knows? Maybe it'll yield all this cash for us in the future. You want to invest in us?" And 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 they came to it with a very skeptical, um, pretty much what you're saying, which is that like, yes, it can do some rudimentary tasks, but it's like not going to provide this sort of, I don't know, like. Um, just human quality that we look for when yeah. we want to when we want to watch a movie or, or listen to music or something. So they were they shared your skepticism and it was really striking. To see the difference in terms of the like tech messianism of oh this is going to replace everything and then actually talk to the guys that have to invest the money and make returns for their um, investors or whatever. They had a very different picture of it. Yeah, I mean 
to me, I wonder, like, is part of the reason the studios are doing this right now, investing so heavily in AI and, you know, doing it really publicly, like with the job posting, like, is this a strategy for, you know, bullying the WGA and SAG to the table and into accepting worse conditions than they otherwise would? Like, I, you know, I wonder if it's, this is kind of an intimidation tactic to some degree. Well, I saw, I think that's, I think that's certainly possible. I, I did though see in basically all of these major streaming companies, entertainment uh, companies, um, they've established, it's not just jobs, they've established offices going back months that they've been putting um, money into. So it's a really huge, so so when you have these big ticket job descriptions that are like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's just to staff one person in an already existing um, like sub department of these different Company, so it seems like part of a huge, and to me, it just belies the fact that they do have money. <laughs> you know, I mean, because they're when you look at what uh, Bob Iger and, and these other executives are saying, it's like, what can we do? You know, I'd love to pay them better, but there just isn't the 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 kind of um, lay narrative is, you know, streaming happened and it had the same effect that internet had for the news, and it's just ruined our revenue. So what can you do? And I, you know, I can't see everything about their books. I can only see what they report. Um, but what that shows is just extraordinary sums of money invested in this uncertain technology. And so the question to me then is, well, do you not have money because you've put it all into this tech? And then at that point, does that really mean you don't have money or that you decided to put it in something else, something yeah. that wasn't labor? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super discouraging, especially now that they are using, you know, we, we see the, like people starting to the studios, I mean, starting to publicly use scabs. Um, I have wondered at various points, like if the goal of the studios is to hold out long enough to see if they can just break these unions. I, I have wondered if like, if this could go on like a long, long time. Well, what according to that news article, they had, they had a, um, a studio executive. I can't remember. I think it was deadline.com say that, uh, the plan explicitly, he said this in a quote, um, was to, uh, uh, make it so wait and wait until um, workers start getting kicked out of their homes and and uh, not not being able to pay rent and things. And so to me, that says, yeah, that's exactly what the strategy is. Just total war, complete destruction on the other side. I think that's that there I, I saw that quote and there was a couple of things that I thought about it. One was like, it, it did seem to be like a very deliberate intimidation tactic. Not that I doubt that they would go through with that plan, but there's also just like such a fundamental understanding of the types of people that work in acting and writing. There's two types of people that do it. One is people who are from a lot of family wealth that can have like, can be supported by their family. And that's why they've been able to do it. But there was another group, which I myself a part of many of my friends, um, people who just literally have like, I don't know, 5,000 side hustles <laughs> to get us through those tough times. And, you know, I think that a lot of people who are working in either of these industries, like they, they have been making money other ways, you know, like a, a writing job, for example, okay, you know, you get paid pretty well during the time that you're working, but like that might be 10 weeks a year. And then you have to support yourself for the rest of the year. So people are doing other shit that ranges from other creative stuff to straight up dog walking, you know, or like working in the service industry. And like, 
I I think that people can hold out, can and will hold out for much longer uh, than they think, because you kind of can't be in this industry in the first place unless you have another plan to support yourself for a long, long, long time until you reach those highest echelons of success. It's funny you say that. I was uh, talking about a week ago with an actress friend of mine, and she was like, they don't realize the fight they've picked. We're extremely good at being unemployed. We're some of the best people at being unemployed because we all have these side hustles and things that we've had to survive to do. We have had so much practice at being unemployed. I don't think they realize what they're up against here. No, I mean, like you, even when the strike isn't happening, like you can be like people pretty regularly unemployed, at least in the industry for, you know, a year longer sometimes you know it could be like like i had a friend who wrote on i'm I'm not gonna give identifying information but he wrote for a show that was a big time show like it was on one of the major streamers was an absolute hit show and he was on the writing staff for that and like hasn't been able to get another job since then he's an incredible writer he's incredibly funny but there just aren't that many jobs to go around. That's part of the reason the strike is happening in the first place is because a lot of places are doing, you know, these mini rooms, but you know, it's just like, yeah, as your friend got it right. Like this is a group of people who is extremely good at being unemployed. <laughs> what I understand, I, I really try to focus on the, the like hard data about like how a- actors and, and writers actually live. Cause I, I hear a lot of these, what, I, I like to pay attention to what the like public comments are on social in, in response to these stories. And I saw so many people be like, um, well, they're, you know, they're privileged to be able to do this. Like, like, the, and, you know, I mentioned before this idea that all rac- actors are rich is obviously isn't true, but also just disabuse. I would love to like have people question this idea that it's like, this isn't real work. It's like literally everybody consumes entertainment. And I think a lot of people kind of like structure their lives where it's like, that's what they're looking forward to. And that's what keeps them going. So it's like, how is this not a real part? How is this less real than the email jobs that like finance people have where they're moving, manipulating numbers around a screen? I don't understand that. I would yeah. love if people question that. There's so many jobs, which are, I mean, like, look, if we want to like reduce it to like, what are the most important jobs? Okay. I don't know. Nurse, like we definitely need that. Right. But like most jobs are not life or death. And certainly the people who bring us like joy and happiness right. in our lives are to me, like actually way more important than people who just take our money and charge. Or like keep people or like keep people going. Like I was just talking, I saw people commenting, just normies commenting on when the strike happened. They're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like if I don't have something to watch, I'm going to go insane. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I feel like this is much more integral to people's, especially a culture like this where everything is hypermediated, like in, in, you know, uh, entertainment, reality TV and whatever else. It's like very strange to me that people can suddenly be like, oh, what do we need that for? Like, what are you talking about? Listen to yourself. I honestly could see the studios holding out for a year or more. I, wow. I, I don't know. I'm always a pessimist. I was a COVID like doomer. Like I was like, this is going to last 18 months. And uh, yeah, I was really pessimistic about it. And people were like, you need to cheer up. But like it totally did. So... I don't know. I just, it seems like they're really, really, really trying to one. Yeah, I think not really it's an important numbers. I think it's a really illustrative thing for, for people that maybe don't have class consciousness to, to look at and see and, and realize that this is more than about money. 
um, there are questions of power here, which is that they want to make an example to people, even if it hurts them, even if they're losing money. You know, there, there are questions, like I said before, in the in the earnings call, they want to determine who gets to sit in the driver's seat and, and they're willing to incur potentially, you know, significant costs in order, which is clearly what's going to happen because they can't produce their content right now under these conditions. So yeah, and I guess I feel both pessimistic, but then also hopeful about that in such stark relief in a situation like this, people kind of see how things really work instead of this facade of, because Bob Iger, he came in pretending to be, I care so much about creatives. And I'm, you know, I'm one of you guys. And I, I produced, or what was it? He, he got the funding for Twin Peaks and I'm just, I'm one of you guys. And then now to just have that mask just ripped off and, and laid bare and, and show people what it really is. I, I, I think that that is a, you know, that's, that's potential for, 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 uh, I think disabusing people of some of these beliefs that they have. Untrue yeah. I can we talk a little bit about what's going on with some of the other unions? I saw UPS. There may be a, there's like a tentative contract right now. What's this is literally I think today, like or yesterday afternoon. Like what's what's happening there at this time? Yeah. So I'm of two minds on that. So on the one hand, it's amazing that they conceded to anything because of yeah. the same power issues I was talking about a moment ago. They don't want to concede anything and give people the idea. They don't want to set a precedent for that. If you fight, you might get something. So that in in a just purely abstract sense, that's interesting. And that's that's in a sense a win. And that's a good sign. On the other hand, um, there, there are signs that they could have gotten a lot more. And so what you're really saying is not just a fight with management, but a fight within the unions themselves, between the sclerotic and calcified um, union uh, leadership, which in many ways uh, is is close with management and and doesn't want strikes themselves, and then the rank and file who uh, was extraordinary. But the um, uh, I think it was the writer strike. They had a vote. And it was like 98 percent in support of a strike. They are looking for a fight. People want to are willing to take on the risk because I think in part because of the macroeconomic conditions we were discussing earlier, but then also just because I think consciousness is shifting a little bit. So the, the workers want the fight. And so part of that isn't just realizing that management is on the other side and they don't share your interests, but even realizing that the leadership of those unions don't share your interests necessarily. I mean, everyone's jumping up and down about Fran Drescher and, you know, I like the show I watch. I don't know that much about her personally, but it's like, she's a very different set of class interests than your rank and file uh, person making less than, what was it? $26,000 a year. And so that's something that people are coming to that people might come to realize. And in the case of UPS, that's a really big question is, so when they cut this deal, is is the rank and file going to abide that? Are they going to be happy with the conditions and what they're able to get? It looks like some of the concessions were air conditioning in cars, which is extremely important. People have literally died delivering packages. It's really, and you know, we are having this heat wave now where uh, water off the coast of Florida is literally boiling hot. So it's like, this is, a, we were talking about life and death. This is a life and death matter. For, it's not a joke. This isn't like, oh, I'd like to feel comfortable. It's like people have to work in this heat all day. So it's like they're getting meaningful concessions, but we, what remains to be seen is if that's in accordance with um, kind of like how far people want to go. And and I, th- I think we'll find that out shortly. Yeah. I saw that they were going to raise the wage for our part-time workers a little bit, but not to the level that the UPS union was demanding or the Teamsters, like, which also seemed like it was, you know, very reasonable demand. Um, I have noticed in media recently that, I mean, there's, 
there's definitely always the kind of narrative of like, this is going to cost the economy so much, or like these tales of like, you know, young children aren't going to be able to get their medicine and just like putting so much blame. All the stuff that, you're right, that the people that run the country care so much about, it, you know, like kids getting their health care that you never hear yeah. them say anything about in any other context. But suddenly it's like, oh my God, think about the children. Yeah, but I'm seeing less of that, I guess, normally than I normally see, you know, or maybe it's just balanced sometimes. Like I saw that there was an article from the like Teamsters president, I think, in Newsweek, like explaining the union's demands. And like, it, it seems like it's becoming... I don't want to say balance because it still heavily favors corporations, but starting to see like, you know, the occasional perspective of the workers get in there. Yeah. One thing that was striking about the environment we find ourselves is how much historical precedent there is for um, post disasters, particularly post pandemics, labor getting a stronger hand, if, if only for the like extremely bleak reason that there are just fewer workers. And so they have more bargaining power because of that. And so um, I agree with you. If you look at what Iger said, he's really the only CEO that's come out and kind of like openly address this stuff. Cause I think the rest of the entertainment executives know that it's not a very good idea. And so I think they're having to improve their like PR because they see that the power has shifted a little bit away from, from their side of the table. And that's interesting. And, and I imagine that that will continue because it's just COVID was brutal, you know, not just it's not just the deaths, which are significant enough, but the number of people that are basically disabled as a consequence of it is really like, it, people don't really talk about it, but that's also pulled a huge segment of the um, uh, uh, working public out of the out of the workforce. And so that's bleak and depressing, but you know, as with anything, it also affords opportunities. And so I think that that's part of why we're seeing this shift. Do you think that... Congress would intervene if the if the team stores decided to strike. Do you think Congress would step in? They would be in a tight spot because again, you know, I'm not an apologist for the Democratic Party by any means, but like they too have have shifted in some significant ways. I mean, one could see um, you know, a split between the progressives and the establishment wing of the party that would put Biden in a coming into an election year in a very awkward position as he's tried to, you know, frame himself as this uh, pro labor guy. So I think that's definitely possible. I mean, as always, it depends on how the messaging is and and, and how much, um, you know, pressure they're able to bring to bear. I mean, you know, I've covered politics for a number of years now and just knowing congressional staffers, they will, you know, a few drinks and they'll tell you like, we pay very close attention to stuff that gets said on Twitter, on social. Like, I think that there's this sense that, um, particularly among kind of like, um, you know, kind of time hardened and, and, and cynical leftists, it's kind of like, oh, what do they care about some symbolic thing if the public's mad? They do. They are actually really worried about if if people are going to start saying something about their member, about the senator that they work for, or the representative that they work for, because they have to worry about elections. And so they do actually pay close attention to, you know, like, it seems like the attitude is generally like, yeah, we don't want to do anything good, but like, how do we do the least amount possible to keep people from yelling at us and 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 imperiling us with a primary challenge or in a general election? And so, in the, in that context, yeah, I think there's a lot of possibility depending on on uh, how strategic the public is about about you know wielding its power and 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 trying to trying to make these representatives feel like it's in their best interest to to do something. 
Yeah, I mean, they did decide to intervene in the rail strike, and it seems like the way that they were able to, you know, do that without too, too much backlash was by, you know, saying... I think you're definitely right, and that was terrible, but there are some different... There are a few dimensions that make it a little bit different. One, obviously, is that this isn't an election year for... He's not coming to an election year for Biden. The other one is that... Again, the U.S. has such bad labor law. I'm not sure if this applies to UPS, but they have essentially like a national security basis for um, the railroads, which is like the idea that we can't conduct our logistics and move things around. And so therefore, like uh, like the airline workers, uh, when, when Reagan broke the union, the argument was basically like, well, we need this to run for our cut for the country to even function. And so these are arguments that are not made in, in, in you know, other developed countries. Um and I'm not sure if that applies to UPS. I'm guessing it's not the same as Rails because just legally that has some yeah. kind of significance to it. So, so I think it. I think it would be. You're right. He definitely, you know, responded to that and, and crushed it. But I, but I think the situation in in the um, UPS is a little bit different. Do you think that the public sentiment towards unions has changed substantially in the past few years? I, I think yes. That- I pay I pay attention to polling on this, and it shifted substantially. The problem is there hasn't been a substantive change. There hasn't been a, a measurable change in what's called union density, like actual membership. But if you look at attitudes, pub approval for it, it's a lot higher than it used to. Be. It's significantly higher than it used to be. So the question I think is if they can translate that into actual changes in membership. It seems like the Amazon union was a big breakthrough in, you know, just like, I don't know, morale, I want to say, what's happening with the Amazon union now? It's like tied up in court, right? Yeah. And what are- What's fascinating too, is that that was like a grassroots effort. Again, there is this sense of, you know, there's different kinds of unions. And so when you say, what do people think of unions? I think if you were to poll union membership, they would have a lot of like cynical feelings towards the kind of like very establishment uh, management side of the traditional unions, and then a lot more sympathy to the grassroots types of the sort that we we saw, you know, s- s- win their election in in the um, New York facility, um, because they're more responsive to you know if people want to strike and if they want to ask for more things. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, I think you're seeing shifts in, in all of these respects. Do you think that Amazon in the New York facility, like, will they be, do you think that the the court will rule in their favor or just no way to know yet? I can't really say. I don't have much expertise on that. I mean, obviously Amazon has a huge amount of political incentive to crush that, to make an example to all the other facilities say, don't even bother. We're going to throw everything at you. I remember um, when all this was shaking out, I looked at their job postings. They were looking for an army of like labor lawyers, presumably to, to, to know how to, uh, respond to this. So they're, you know, very highly incentivized to, to make an example of this. So we'll wrap up here in just a couple minutes, but, you know, let's say, hopefully let's imagine like a good future where we just see like, you know, th- these strikes are successful, um, that union membership continues to increase, um, that the public, you know, continues to support unions. Like how could this potentially affect our politics in other ways outside of unions? Huge. That's a, that's the most important point. So, um, when you see, um, union income rise, you also see non-union income rise too, not as much as union membership, but, um, it causes uh, private sector, um, non-union, 
employers to try to compete with them to to offer you know attractive benefits and pay and things, and so so um, you, you not only see a change in the non-union sectors, but then also in government. If you look at how the Democratic Party is constituted, if unions are able to grow density and get enough money, they're going to be able to become a base of power for the Democratic Party and turn it into an authentic labor party of the sort that it has you know resembled at points in in now the distant past. And if you're able to you know crowd out basically what the party has had to rely on uh, with the decline of unions, which is a lot of finance money, big tech, those kind of things, I would imagine that you're going to see a very different uh, Democratic Party in terms of what they're willing to um, support. So to me, that's even more important than just um, the bread and butter issue of you know your, your own um, uh, livelihood and how much what your wages are and your benefits. It could change the entire political landscape if they're able to get um, fi- finance things from workers as opposed to finance things from from you know uh, pri- private capital, which is essentially the system that we have now. But I think that's pretty far in the. F- I mean, things are still so nascent at this point. I do feel like things are seems like mo- things are moving in a positive direction, but there's just so many um, question marks left. Um, and a really good, yeah, a really good example. A really good example of that is the UPS thing. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I know I said that was the last question, but I do have one follow-up question to that, which is like, you know, unions have historically been so important to the Democratic Party and hopefully will be a big piece of power in the future. But like my understanding is like Obama actually made some decisions that, you know, really were really hard on on unions and like building union power. And like, I, I'm... I can't remember exactly what it was, but like, did he do that? And if so, like what and and why? And like, how could we avoid that again? Well, up until Biden, they all have been. I mean, I give you the example of um, Reagan with, I remember during during re-election in 20, or uh, uh, at the end of Biden's ter- uh, Obama's term, right before the 2016 election, Obama was going around, t- nobody remembers this, but he was going around touting the TPP, which was described as NAFTA on steroids by by labor at the time. And so that's that that's kind of what I want to stress is like you have you know plenty of reason to be skeptical about you know how significant these improvements are. But 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 at the same time to say that there hasn't been a um reorientation uh isn't really accurate. Uh so I I don't think Biden would I mean in fact we're not seeing Biden campaign on stuff like that right now. It's been completely yeah. dropped. And so there has been pretty meaningful uh shifts that you know obviously i'm <laughs> i'm never gonna be happy with how far things have gone i want to see things go farther but but yeah it's like uh, just compare things to to you know previous administrations quite a big change yeah the case the case of um the the um uh reagan breaking the the airline union i mean there's just all of these things that people don't interrogate which is like wait a second why sh- why can't Air, airline workers be unique. It's like, what's that? And then they just say some vague stuff about national security or something. It's like, there has to come a point where people are just going to start to question some of these bedrock. I mean, the reality is nobody really thinks it. it, you know, capital thinks about this stuff very carefully, but ordinary people have to start to question and say, wait, is this really necessary? Yeah. You know, to... Well, this has been a really good conversation and thank you so much for coming back on the show. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your reporting? I'm on Twitter and I'm also on Substack at kenclippenstein.com. 
Uh, yeah, you're. I'm a subscriber to your newsletter, and it's really good. I, I, I'm there to to get the get the hot goss. <laughs> the hot bottom. labor goss. <laughs> yeah, the hot labor goss. All right. Um, thank you so much, Ken. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Muhammad Al Sheikhi. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song is performed by Emily Fremgen and written by Emily with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's, and I am at Mohanad Al Sheikhi. And Twitter is where you can find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is mine